This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, I appreciate it. My name is Troy Swanson. I'm the department chair for the library. It's a great privilege for me to introduce Dr. Emily Landon. We go way back. I don't want her to tell any stories, but we were actually undergrads together. Um, so I saw her research come up and some of the work she's doing, and I said, i got to get you out to our campus, and she agreed to come out, so I greatly appreciate it. Um, Dr. Landon uh, earned her bachelor's degree at Augustana College, the finest liberal arts college in America. Um, did her MD at Loyola and residency at University of Chicago. She's currently at the Antibiotic Stewardship Program at the University of Chicago. So um, with that, we'll get into the talk. Thank you. Hi. So Troy tells me that you all are like sort of allied health and nursing students. Is that right? Okay. Um, some bio people? Okay, good. I was a bio person, so we're all on the same page. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about um, how we can improve healthcare quality because that's what I spend most of my time doing. Um, this is a quote from the Institute of Medicine's um, To Air is Human report from 2000, which says that at least 44,000 people and perhaps as many as 98,000 people die in hospitals every year as a result of medical errors that could have been prevented. And as healthcare practitioners, it's our responsibility to help prevent these things from happening to patients. But it's not easy to do. And there's a lot of knowledge that we need to know in order to be able to make these things, make hospitals safer places for patients. So I work in two main areas, infection prevention and antibiotic stewardship. So the first part of this talk is obviously, what is that? So infection prevention, this is the Wikipedia definition because my um, society doesn't actually have one. Um, the discipline concerned with preventing healthcare-associated infection, a practical subdiscipline of epidemiology. So basically, there were about 1.7 million healthcare-associated infections in 2002. You guys have heard about these sorts of things. People get sick with infections in the hospital, and it's a tragedy. Nearly 100,000 people died, as many deaths as breast cancer, motor vehicle accidents, and HIV combined. Now, we go out and we do marathons and we walk for two days in order to support breast cancer, but I haven't seen anyone walking around Grant Park to prevent healthcare-associated infections. So I think we have a little ways to go. These result in longer lengths of stay, higher cost, and CMS or Medicare doesn't reimburse um, the hospitals for caring for these patients. Antibiotic stewardship is, along the same lines, coordinated interventions designed to improve and measure the appropriate use of antibiotics. So, it turns out using antibiotics is a little bit complicated because if you have the incorrect dose, the incorrect duration, the incorrect drug, or the incorrect diagnosis, or any number of other things, you result in the same common pathway, which is treatment failure or toxicity and resistance. And it's a lot, it's very difficult for people who are practicing really complicated disciplines um, with lots of other specialized knowledge to know everything there is to know about antibiotics as well. And so basically these two things go together and I do research in both of these areas in order to help improve the care of patients in hospitals. So research to me is new knowledge. And many of you think about research as maybe fruit flies or things in labs or test tubes and stuff like that or maybe clinical trials and new drugs. But the reality is that there are a lot of ways in which we do clinical research. Learning something previously unknown, that's a little bit like the fruit flies and the new drugs. Finding new ways to implement known solutions is another one that we don't always think about but is really important because you can have all the solutions in the world but if you can't make them happen for patients, then it doesn't matter. And using innovative and multidisciplinary interventions to help find ways to solve problems that aren't necessarily things that we don't know, but ways of fixing the way that systems work in hospitals. Does this make sense to everyone? Okay. So today I'm going to tell you four stories. This is not going to be laden down with all sorts of technical detail. Just a little background so that you understand what I'm talking about. We're going to talk about an outbreak of conjunctivitis in a neonatal intensive care unit. We're going to talk about our own battle at the University of Chicago of a superbug. And we're going to talk about changing bad habits, which is um, about hand hygiene. And I'm going to hope I can encourage all of you to have good habits. 
And then a really popular topic, which is I can use Facebook at work. So we'll get to that. Let's start out by talking about a little outbreak that we had. And I'll, I'll mention that um, this resulted, this, this outbreak was a nice outbreak because everybody only had conjunctivitis and everybody was fine. So um, one Tuesday in March, I got a phone call that we had um, two cases of adenovirus conjunctivitis, pink eye, in the neonatal intensive care unit. Now, neonates should not have adenovirus. When we looked back to see how many cases of adenovirus we'd had in the last year, the answer was zero. So um, we decided that we needed to do something. So the first thing we did was we, we thought we needed, and as you know, if you've had pink eye, who's had pink eye? Um, it spreads like wildfire to everyone, right? And so um, we decided we were going to isolate these kids, and we needed to figure out which other babies might have it so that we could isolate them as well, because we needed to protect the kids, that, the babies that were healthy. So we did. We closed the unit to transfers. We implemented these things called contact and droplet precautions, which is basically where you have to wear gowns and gloves and a mask all the time. We um, said that sick staff and sick visitors just couldn't come in anymore because we didn't know who had what. We decided that you needed to clean your equipment. Adenovirus is really tricky. It'll get on everything, and it'll live on paper for three months. So um, we know we needed to sort of be really careful with it. So we used bleach wipes. We cleaned a lot of stuff. Um, we wouldn't allow the charts to actually go in the area where the patients were. They had to be written in outside of that area. It was very tricky. And we decided we were going to screen all the other infants. And so we did. And what we found later that day, each of these boxes represents a patient, right? So on the 23rd, we discovered that there were five more patients with um, adenovirus who hadn't developed symptoms yet, but that would. And so we put everybody into this cohorting scheme. Cohorting is something that we use in the hospital to separate people in different groups from one another. We don't use it very often, but sometimes it's a really good idea. So this is a map of our neonatal intensive care unit. And there are these pods, right, that are separated by little doors in between. Um, and we closed off all the doors, and we decided that we were going to put all the sick kids, all the ones that had tested positive, over in this pod K250, the red pod. That's like the danger zone pod. All the middle pods were going to be the kids that were in the unit and might have been exposed, but probably but tested negative right now. So they might develop something. We don't know. So we put them all together. And then we had a couple of moms. We closed the unit to transfer. We had a couple of moms who were like 26 weeks pregnant and, and in labor in our um, adult hospital in the labor and delivery area, and we needed a place to put their babies. So... We cleaned out this K230 pod with a lot of bleach and took everything out of it and decided that was going to be our pure as the driven snow pod, and we put all of the new, new babies into that pod. Okay, so we had a safety, so we created a safe plan um, based on, you know, sort of common sense about how we were going to do things. But then we had to figure out what happened and why these kids got sick in the first place. So we decided we were going to have ophthalmology come and visit the kids. Makes sense, right? They have conjunctivitis. But the pediatric ophthalmology attending was at home with conjunctivitis. <laughs> so um, we began to see a little bit about why uh, we might have a problem. And he told us that his resident had worked with conjunctivitis back on February 19th. Um, he had come in in the morning and developed symptoms by lunchtime and then went home. But that's long enough. So if we add our ophthalmology staff in and we know the incubation period, we can see that that's probably the cause of our problem. But how did the virus get from person to person in between? I mean, because if those babies were exposed back on the 19th of February, they should have been sick by the beginning of March. So how did they take until March 23rd to get sick? There must have been something contaminated, and we had to figure out what it was. So that's a little bit of detective work. So we looked at the babies that had had retinopathy of prematurity exams, which are these ophthalmologic exams that they do routinely on neonates that are at high risk. And it turns out every single kid that was sick had an ROP exam. So we did a case control analysis, and we evaluated what the attack rate was. And this, we presented this at a, at a meeting a couple of years ago at IDSA, but it's very interesting that 75% of the kids uh, that had had exams on March 11th ended up sick. So we decided it was probably the ophthalmology equipment. But the question is why, right? So they use these little things called scleral depressors and ocular specula. They hold the eye open, right, because little babies can't hold their eye open for you. 
and they're reusable, and they're soaking them in alcohol between, between uses for like 10 to 30 minutes. This is, um, we call this equipment semi-critical because it touches the mucous membrane. You'll hear this term again if you work in, in medical care. And APIC, or the Professional Society for Infection Control, recommends that you put them through uh, a, a semi-critical device reprocessing thing with glutaraldehyde, which is insane because um, glutaraldehyde is really dangerous to eyes. So that recommendation really wasn't very reasonable. So we had said 70% isopropyl alcohol, which is what the uh, American Academy of Ophthalmology had recommended. Well, it turns out they were doing that. But what we did is we took samples from the equipment and we collected them and we sent them off to the CDC for testing for adenovirus. Almost everything on the cart was positive. So the cart handle grew adenovirus. The miscellaneous supply bags, adenovirus. Lens case, more adenovirus. Battery pack, adenovirus. The contents of the irrigation bottle, more adenovirus. The clean specula and depressors that they were going to use that day, adenovirus. The headlamp, adenovirus. The alcohol bottle that they were using to disinfect, also positive for adenovirus. And what we found was that the guidelines, the recommended guidelines from the American Academy of Ophthalmology, which said to to immerse these in 70% isopropyl alcohol was not adequate. And so the guidelines actually have changed now on what to do, and it's recommended that you use either um, those uh, disposable kind or that you send them in for sterilization before every use. So this is an example of how, and, and by the way, we, our, our cohorting was very successful. We didn't have any more cross-transmission. We were able to reopen the unit and um, we were able to report this so that now the recommendations are changing. This will come out in an MMWR shortly if anybody follows the CDC MMWR. But this is an example of how research can happen sort of in action. I didn't plan on doing this research project. This research project fell into my lap on the 23rd of March. Um, and it resulted in new knowledge that we used to help protect patients that are having ophthalmology exams all over the place. Cool or not cool? A little cool. I mean, it's not like it's Ebola or anything, but I wouldn't bring that here because that would be scary. So anyway, that's that. So um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about how we use research that's already been done about things to find new ways of implementing solutions that make things better for patients. So have you all heard about this NIH superbug business? You saw this um, in the newspaper. NIH had this... Um, Superbug, that they um, had an outbreak where like 12 people got sick and seven people died, all because of this um, carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae or Klebsiella pneumoniae carbapenemase, which all of those words don't mean anything right now, but they will in about three minutes, okay? So, um, yeah, so they had this big problem there, and it's like all over the news, and everybody's all excited about it. Well, we've had these bugs in Chicago since 2007. So I don't understand what all the hullabaloo is about because we managed to keep control of this in our hospital quite well. So here's an example of what happens with this kind of bacteria. 56-year-old male comes to our hospital for a surgical repair of a, of a tear to his gut that happened after he had his gallbladder out. And they find multiple intra-abdominal fluid collections or abscesses. Um, and the patient shows up to us on two really strong antibiotics, doripenem and gentamicin, and they take them back to the OR to clean out the stuff, and they find Klebsiella pneumoniae growing on all the cultures. How many of you have seen antibiotic susceptibility reports? Well, um, it, it doesn't take a very savvy clinician to understand that this is not good, right? So um, every single antibiotic that we tested to, except for this gentamicin, is resistant. And the gentamicin, just so that you know that four next to it, does, is not great news. <laughs> it's susceptible, but it's going to be kind of tricky, right? So basically, we don't really have any antibiotics to treat this infection. And that is what a carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae looks like. And it is what we call a superbug. So let's talk a little bit about what these are. So bacteria in this group are um, causes of community and healthcare-acquired infections. E. coli, you've heard of, right? It's the most common cause of outpatient urinary tract infections. E. coli and Klebsiella, I'll call it Klebs, are important causes of healthcare-associated infections. And together, they accounted for 15% of all the healthcare-associated infections that were reported in the year 2007. 
We usually use beta-lactam antibiotics. Does anybody know about beta-lactams? It's like all the penicillins. So if somebody says they're allergic to penicillin, it's all of these drugs. They have been the mainstay for treating these kinds of infections. But we started to see resistance to these um, antibiotics back a while back. And um, we first saw this phenomenon called these extended spectrum beta-lactamase producers. The, the importance of the names is not, is not important to you. But it's important to know that there's been an evolution of resistance. We were always left with these last-line drugs, the carbapenems. Imipenem, Doripenem, Ertapenem, Miropenem. These have, if you've worked in a hospital, you might have given a patient these drugs or if you've done any clinicals. Um, those still worked for almost everything. And then antimicrobial resistance follows antimicrobial use as surely as night follows day. Um, we discovered carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae. And these bugs are your average garden variety E. coli or Klebsiella or any of those bugs that carry an enzyme called Klebsiella pneumoniae carbapenemase. And that's a really long way of saying it, you can't use carbapenems anymore. Um, you can find this enzyme in other, it's not just in Klebsiella pneumoniae, it's called that because they found it there first. But it means that you have resistance to like everything. And um, that can be pretty bad for patients. So first, the first case of this happened in North Carolina in 1999, and the first KPC in Chicago was, in, was found in 2007. There are a number of cases of this in New York City, and that's how the case uh, that came to the NIH got there, that came, was imported from a patient that was imported from uh, New York. Klebs pneumo is the most likely species to be a CRE, um, and it's the most commonly encountered one here. It's resistant to almost all antimicrobial agents, so there's really not much in the way of treatment options. Infections with CREs have been associated with very high rates of morbidity and mortality, not surprisingly, since you can't really treat them. And there's been an increasing prevalence of KPC colonization amongst nursing home and long-term acute care centers. Um, a survey of hospitals in Chicago said 65% have had KPCs, and that was back in 2010. Most of the people who get these bacteria, these superbugs, are patients that are hospitalized, and they have a lot of other medical problems. They've been hospitalized previously, or they've been in the hospital for a while. They usually have invasive devices, and they've usually gotten a lot of antibiotics in the past. Make sense? So what they did at the NIH is they did this sort of like sequential pro project where they added, you know, they put these patients on isolation, then they wanted to make sure the hand hygiene was better, then they cleaned the rooms a little bit more, and it took them a long time to get all of these things done. They sort of tried one thing at a time. Well, when we saw our first KPC, we said, forget it. We're going to go crazy. We decided to use what's called a bundled approach. Now, this has been shown to be effective in preventing central line infections when you use a bundled approach to putting in a line. It's also been shown to be helpful in preventing catheter-associated urinary tract infections. So we thought, let's do this with our KPCs. So we decided to bump up our isolation practices. So the yellow gowns and gloves, you guys go to places where they have yellow gowns and gloves? Yeah, yellow gowns and gloves. And um, we had the lab call up to the floor, call the attending, call infection control so that we made absolutely sure everybody knew that this patient had a CRE. Then we did what I like to call a super clean because, first of all, it's supervised, which I like. And then, secondly, it um, includes bleaching everything, including the walls, and taking down the curtains. Now, when, if you've spent any time in the hospital, when was the last time you think they took down those curtains in that room, right? Don't touch the curtains. Um, so uh, this was good, and, and slowly but surely we'll replace all of our curtains. Um, we also did major education uh, pro projects like what I'm talking to you about today and with our, our medical house staff. And then we decided from an antibiotic stewardship standpoint that we needed to cut back on carbapenems. So the way this works is if, I, if you have a KPC sort of colonizing you, sitting on your skin or in your gut, and I give you antibiotics, that KPC isn't as strong because it's so resistant. It's not as strong as many of the other bugs. However, if I give you a carbapenem, I'm going to kill everything except for that. And then it overgrows and causes an infection. 
So the less carbapenem we use, the less often we're going to see infections with these carbapenem-resistant bacteria. So it's key, maybe not to preventing the acquisition of carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae, but it will prevent the emergence of these kinds of infections. And I would much rather treat any infection besides this one any day of the week. So we went a little crazy. And this is, in our hospital, we use mirapenem. We have limited formulary because we have a lot of controls about antibiotics because it's the best way to do things. And so you can see that over the last year and a half, we've cut back on our carbapenem use significantly. We don't use anything besides mirapenem in-house. And um, it is really, really, really 50% decreased. And what we saw was a decrease in our CRE at our hospital by 45%. Now, some patients, most every one of these patients that has CRE now came in with it from another place. And so we, I can't do anything about the people that come in from it from somewhere else. But I can prevent new cases coming up while they're in the hospital by avoiding carbapenems. And we've been really, really good at doing that. And um, I don't understand why the NIH has such a problem, to be honest with you. <laughs> anyway, you, you see the point. This superbug is out there. It's dangerous. It's awful. But it can be managed, and we can treat these infections with combination therapy. It doesn't always work so well, but m the most important thing is to, be, is to help your hospital make it so that these infections don't show up in the first place, and then we don't have that problem. Make sense? Okay. Changing gears again. Is everybody still with me? Am I talking too fast? Okay. Hand hygiene. This is like my favorite thing in the entire world because I think that we don't need to do all of this other messing around with stuff we do in hospitals if we would all just wash our hands because the only thing that's going from patient to patient most of the time is our hands, right? Some equipment does, but that's easily fixed, right? We can give everybody their own blood pressure cuff. That's not the end of the world. The real issue is our hands when we're touching patients. And I, you'll notice on here that the dates of this project started back in 1847 when Ignaz Semmelweis was delivering babies and then going downstairs and doing autopsies on the women who had died in childbirth and then coming back up and delivering more babies and discovered that all these women were dying and suggested that if everyone soaked their hands in this lye solution, um, in between when they did the autopsies and when they delivered the babies, maybe everybody would get better, and it worked. And all of a sudden, this was sort of pre-germ theory, right? And so um, people started to realize that you needed to wash your hands because we were carrying bad pathogens from person to person. And this is the, the basis for why we have hand hygiene campaigns. Now, all of you, I know because I've done surveys of, of people that are early on in their training, believe that hand hygiene is really important, correct? Right. The studies show that as you go through more and more training, and this, we've shown this in our research and other people have shown it as well, that you will slowly but surely develop bad habits about washing your hands, and you won't do it as often. And I don't know exactly why that happens, but I do know that we should fix it. So you all know hand hygiene is important. This is a, a handprint culture of somebody that was taking care of a patient with MRSA. This is Cromogger, so MRSA grows red and shiny. And then this is the same hand after they use that alcohol-based hand gel that is ubiquitous in hospitals, and you know, Purell, right? That stuff works, swear to God. Um, and the World Health Organization has this big plan about when they want you to wash your hands, when you're going into the room, when you're coming out of the room, whether or not you touch the patient, before you do some sort of aseptic task, like draw blood, and then after you expose, you're exposed to blood or bodily fluid. Now, the after exposure to blood or bodily fluid is remarkably, actually people are quite good at that, um, because most people don't want to have stuff on their hands after they've, like, changed a Foley bag or cleaned up poop. Um, but the rest of it doesn't really go very well. So um, this is a conglomeration of five different studies about our hand hygiene compliance across the country. And you can see that it's, it's less than the 100% that we would all be hoping for, um, significantly less. And so, you know, a lot of people have done a lot of things to help improve hand hygiene. And the first thing they do is they try and measure what their hand hygiene is. And so we have a number of different ways of doing that. We can use self-report. So I can just ask you, how often did you wash your hands? 
and you'll probably tell me about 20% more than what you actually did. We know that, but um, that's not super helpful to me. Then we can do observation, where I send out these secret shoppers out to the floors, and then they watch to see whether or not people are washing their hands. This is, by the way, the gold standard. Unfortunately, secret shoppers don't remain secret for very long. Um, and we can't, like, go and fire everybody every two weeks and hire new people. So that's sort of not going to work. And um, that leads to what we call the Hawthorne effect. So when you know you're being watched, you're more likely to change your behavior. You know what I'm talking about, right? This is like when somebody's paying attention to you, you stand up straighter or, you know, same, same difference. But you're more likely to wash your hands when someone is watching you. So this gives us great data, but the problem is if we have a secret shopper, they can't know the names of the other people or else the people will know them too, right? So I can send my secret shopper out, but they don't know Dr. Jones from Dr. Smith. And so they can just tell me that doctors only wash their hands, you know, 50% of the time, but they can't tell me who it was. And they can't tell me who was doing a great job and who was doing a bad job. And we know that some people are good and some people are bad, right? So it's really hard to intervene on people. Um, imagine, for example, if uh, you know those speed things that they put on um, uh, where they tell you how fast you're going, you know, those little things. Imagine if they put one of those on your street, and every time somebody went quickly down the, like went too fast down the street, everybody on the block got a ticket. That's what we do with hand hygiene. We send somebody out to measure how people are washing their hands. And, and then when we come back and tell everybody on the unit what the hand hygiene rate was, you know, they say, well, it was somebody else that was here visiting. It wasn't somebody who, you know, it wasn't us. It wasn't me. You can't really blame me for this. And then there's no actual behavior change, right? So then we think, well, maybe we could use something more um, objective, like hand gel use. Like how much hand gel have we used? Unfortunately, then you have, like, a doctor who's got six patients on your unit who likes to push the pump twice, um, and then the next week that doctor doesn't have any patients on your unit, and all of a sudden it looks like your hand hygiene compliance dropped. So it, it's not really um, a, uh, a solution. So um, what we do is we put up these signs. You know, you've all seen them, like these big posters that say, ooh, wash your hands, don't forget to pump in, pump out. And... Um, this is one example of an intervention where they started out with hand hygiene compliance about 37%, and then they did this intervention, and they got it up to about 50, which is great. Not great, but, you know. And then six months later, they left the signs up. They didn't take them down. They were even worse than when they started because there's this thing called extinction where um, you're going to not pay attention to it after a while. And so it's really hard to improve hand hygiene, which is why we've been working on it for 200 years. So I have this idea. Not just me. There are a few other people that have this idea, but not that many. Um, that we can use technology to help monitor people, their hand hygiene. So you guys have all seen these tags. This is like from a Banana Republic shirt, right? The things that say that you're supposed to cut them out before wearing. These are radio frequency identification tags, and they're meant to help prevent theft, right? So you can see the little antennas um, in the door at the Banana Republic, so that if you take this shirt out without them deactivating it, then you'll be in trouble. Yes, you're all aware of this. Well, we use the same technology in a number of different ways, right? So um, when you go through the iPass, that's radio frequency identification. Your little thing is sending a little ping up there saying, this is Joanne's car, debit my account, right? And when you use your Chicago card, if you take the L and you have a Chicago card, it debits your account, again, using RFID. In the hospital, we have it for um, infant abduction prevention. And so moms and the babies have these little matching wristbands, and the only way a baby can leave the unit is if they're with their mom. Does that make sense? And then you've seen these little tiny stickers with the, you know, like in books, those little stickers. Those are RFID tags, too. Um, and so we can use RFID tags on all sorts of different things. So why can't we put them on uh, healthcare providers? So what we have in one of our units at the, at, um, at the University of Chicago is this electronic monitoring of hand hygiene program. We started developing this system back in like 2007 with um, Illinois Institute of Technology and Motorola. And at the time we had antennas that were like 
a foot square, which is not exactly useful for a hospital. So other companies were working, you know, third-party vendors were working on this too. So we finally purchased one and installed it in our medical intensive care unit. And the way it works is that every at every hand gel dispenser and every soap dispenser, there's what we call a reader. It's a little box, and it, um, it sends out a signal looking for whether or not someone is in the room or in the hallway. And it also, when you go and use the dispenser, says, who used me, right? So basically, we can tell if you're wearing a tag when you go into or out of a patient's room, and we can tell when you use the hand gel. Then we just use the we just use some software and match the two up, and we can give you an individual hand hygiene compliance rate. Now, a lot of people are worried about this because they think this is a, what a loss of privacy. But I will remind you that all of our units have, and at the University of Chicago have um, uh, videotaping all the time, 24 hours a day on them. So I don't really think you're losing much else from this. Um, but the point being that if I could tell you accurately, you know, this is like the speeding ticket thing again. If a cop catches you speeding and you were speeding and he says, here, look at the little radar gun, you're kind of like, yeah, I was doing that. And then you get your ticket and then you slow down for a little bit, right? You may not slow down forever and maybe feedback isn't the answer. But it's a lot better than just sending everyone on the block a ticket, right? So um, I think we can use this along with rewards and penalties to help improve um, people's hand hygiene. But the thing is, the technology is a little tricky. So we did this project initially, and we proved that it could work. So we had some accuracy. This is what we did in a lab with uh, Motorola. And it shows that this, this can work. It's accurate for detecting when people enter or when people exit or when they use the hand gel dispenser. And we put it into um, a, a non-patient room in the hospital in the patient care area to make sure it didn't interfere with any of the other systems in the hospital, and it didn't. So I think uh, after that, we decided we were probably safe to do this. So we installed this new fancy system, and we did, we did it here and at the University of Maryland because um, we wanted to make sure that people who um, hadn't been working on RFID forever could still use it. Um, and so we did all these testing to see how valid and accurate it was. And what we found was that as long as you wear the badge in the right place, it works really well. But if you, like, do this thing where you, like, wash your hands as you're, like, you push the lever as you're walking by, or you wear your badge on your waist, it doesn't work so well. And this is a limitation of this technology. Now, a lot of hospitals have installed technology like this, and um, they may not realize whether or not it works. Um, so we focus a lot on proving accuracy, because if I tell you that you're not washing your hands and you tell me, well, the system doesn't work, you're not going to get anything out of that. You need to know that it's um, functional. And so we have to do a lot of steps. This is an example of how research takes lots and lots of steps before you can get to someplace that you really want to be. It takes years and years to develop this kind of technology and then to prove that it works and to refine it so that it works properly. We're going to solve some of these problems by switching to uh, touchless dispensers, which mean that you have to stand next to the dispenser for at least um, a half of a second, literally a half of a second, 500 milliseconds. And um, that is long enough for me to catch you for sure with your badge. Um, and uh, it's not seen as onerous in terms of adding time to your day. But the thing is that electronic monitoring doesn't really change behavior on its own. It's just a tool for learning the truth. So we have to do all these steps in getting the technology ready, but then we have to figure out how we're going to use it. And so that's why we have to decide about feedback, and, and we have to think about how we're going to do rewards and penalties. So there's lots more to learn in this project. This is um, the data from one pilot that Jim Edmond did at Virginia Commonwealth where he um, installed a similar thing that buzzed when you didn't wash it. It was a badge that sniffs alcohol. It's not very functional because you have to rub your hands uh, right in front of the badge and then it has to sniff the alcohol. It's not great, but it's, you know, it's something. And um, it buzzed every time you didn't wash your hands when you went into a room. And he found really major improvement in compliance. Like, this is good, right? That line up there is very, very good once they turned on the buzzing. Unfortunately, they didn't tell us how many people didn't wear their badges or quit wearing them. So it, was, it sort of gets a little tricky. This is just pilot data. But still, it suggests that this will work. And so um, we work a lot on this, um, and we spend a lot of time on it. And if any of you have questions or are interested in it, I can talk more about it. But I think everybody's getting bored of hand hygiene. So um, I'm going to switch gears, and I'm going to talk a little bit about something more fun. Social media, like Facebook, 
Twitter, you know what these things are, right? Um, so the problem. The problem is that house staff, that's like residents and students and interns, right? At my hospital, they change around every one to three years. They're always switching. There's always somebody new coming on. Yet they write most of the orders and they decide about most of the antibiotics and they're really inexperienced. I mean, they're just coming out of medical school and they're making these decisions on the fly in the middle of the night that aren't getting corrected until the next morning. But they're also under these ridiculous work hours restrictions, which are good. It's good to have work hours restrictions, but this is a bit much. They're a little crazy now. Um, and that means there's less time to do their work and there's less time to go to educational conferences. So I can't reach them to teach them about antibiotics in the way that I'm talking to you today. So that's a big problem for us. Now, we do have some resources to help us. First of all, our house staff need to make decisions about antibiotics every single day. It's one of the most commonly prescribed things in our hospital, so they're motivated to learn how to do things. And they need faster ways of doing their work. So if they know about these decision support tools like order sets and clinical pathways or ways to make their job easier, easier they would do them if they knew how to find them. Also, our house staff are continually connected to the Internet and to the electronic health record because they ha all have iPads. Our hospital is one of the first hospitals to adopt this uh, massive iPads in the um, healthcare setting thing, and, and now everybody has them. And 100% and of our health staff, it turns out, are on either Facebook or Twitter, and they use their iPads for it. In fact, the university is pretty, or the hospital is pretty irritated because people spend so much time on Facebook and Twitter. But we suggested that maybe we could use that to our advantage by using it to bridge the gap in understanding. So we have this Facebook page, and now all of you are welcome to participate in this project. This is, a, this is an example of research and process. We haven't gotten very far. This is the very beginning of a project, but we think it's going to be really good, and we could use your help. So we have a Facebook page. This is our Facebook page. You can see, you know, it's our, our little pill picture there. And we post all this stuff. This is, this is how Troy found me, actually. Um, this, we post all this stuff up here about um, different things that are going on, different changes in guidelines, stuff that people want to know, just basic health information. It's not all geared toward physicians. Some of it's just stuff that's in the news that you should know about. You know, when does the flu season start? We'll let you know, that sort of thing. And then we also have Twitter. And everything we put on Twitter shows up on Facebook and vice versa, right? And so um, here we send out questions to people sometimes, like uh, a trivia challenge. What's the recommended antibiotic duration for community-acquired pneumonia? And then if you use Twitter, you know, you use this little hashtag thing, and then, um, then you can search for all the, ha all the responses under that hashtag, right? Yeah, look, I didn't, I, I'm old. Um, I mean, I'm not that old, but uh, I'm old enough to require um, having to do a YouTube tutorial on how to use Twitter before I could even consider this project. So, so don't feel bad if you don't know what I'm talking about. You put a little pound sign in front of any, something and then it becomes searchable in Twitter. That's all you need to know. So, um, so then people can answer, right? See, so Alison Bartlett here answers. My answer is 10 days because she's a pediatrician. She's probably right for kids. And then uh, Jihan, our, uh, our PharmD, and she says, she says she's one of our PharmD residents. She says, I think five days. She's kidding. We all know it's five days because that's what we're the ones who sent out the question. So um, anyway, so we all respond to this, and then we can see them, and then we can have contests with our house staff, and we can give them prizes for getting the right answers, and people can learn from each other, and it's a good way for people to get, a, to get in, involved. So the way that we do this as a project, a re so how do we take this idea and turn it into a research project. Because research can be about things like Facebook and Twitter. It doesn't have to be about fruit flies and genetics. So how do we take this idea and turn it into something that we can measure and quantify and gain new knowledge from? So we decided what we're going to do is create this pretest about antibiotics, right, um, that tests our house staff what they know about antibiotics. And then we do these daily trivia things. We give people small gifts for answering questions correctly, and we enter them in lotteries to win $100 Amazon gift cards. Because if I offered you a $5 coffee card, if you managed to answer these questions properly, or a lottery for a $100 Amazon gift card, you would do it, wouldn't you? 
So this gets people to pay attention and teaches them inadvertently while they're doing it. Plus, we can also send out other things that in include information like, hey, we have a new order set for community-acquired pneumonia. It's called this. You can find it here. And we can send out things that say, it's the beginning of flu season. We had our first cases. Make sure you're testing everybody for influenza. And these are the things that we can get information in a timely fashion out to our house staff by getting them involved. So then, at the end of our six-month intervention, we test all those people that we tested before to see if they improved their scores, whether or not they learned anything. And we can also use this as, we can also measure how often people use those order sets and things like that, because if we say, for example, what we'll do is we have a community-acquired pneumonia new order set that's um, about to go live, and um, we'll only use Twitter to market it, or Facebook. Basically, so the only way you'll know about it is if you hear about it from that or if somebody tells you. So we can measure the efficacy of our intervention, how often people are paying attention to our Twitter, not just by how many times they click on our links and things like that, but also based on how often they use the information in order to do things differently in the hospital. So we think it's a good idea, right? Um, but this is an example of how you turn a project, and I think Pfizer is going to fund us too, so anyway, that's good. And um, so... It, this is how you turn a good idea that has nothing to do with sitting in a lab and swabbing plates into a real project. And so the reality is that this clinical quality improvement research has a lot of different forms, and it can be pretty interesting. Sometimes research projects just fall in your lap because there's a problem and you need to figure out what to do. And sometimes you have a really good idea, like wanting to use Facebook for good, and, um, and so you turn it into a project. It doesn't have to be difficult or complicated, and it doesn't have to require a PhD in order to be able to participate in these projects. So you all can start right now. Um, please friend us on Facebook or um, follow us on Twitter um, so that we can uh, improve our fan base. I guess that's what you call it. I don't really know. Anyway, um, but the more people that we have responding to what we're doing and telling us what's good and what's not good, the better we can be at tailoring our information to people so that they're getting what they need. Um, and we want to help provide you with that, so please join us, and uh, hopefully you'll learn something, too. And I think that's all I wanted to say today, but I thought you might have questions. Yeah, please ask me questions. Oh, come on. taking care of patients, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's saying um, if you use hand sanitizer too much, maybe you're just killing the good bacteria. And don't you need the good bacteria to protect you? Yeah, in real life you do. In a hospital, no. Because there's way too many of the bad bacteria. When you're walking around on the street, you know, I, look, I have a four-year-old little boy, and I do not clean his hands with hand sanitizer all the time because I think it's good for him to get some germs and to, like, sort of, be like it creates good healthy immune system and your skin should have good germs on it to protect you from bad things. Thing is that in the hospital there's just way too many bad germs. Patients are covered in bad germs. We know from doing these studies of, of, um, of their what's covering the patient, what they're colonized with, that it changes dramatically after 24 hours in the hospital. And then they're covered in essentially the organisms that, not the things that we usually associate with healthy skin, but the things we associate with stool. And um, it's all over them. So think about that next time you're in the hospital. Um, so the, the point is that you don't want to pass that into the next person's wound. Plus, you know, the good bacteria on your hand can cause a lot of trouble in somebody's wound or around somebody's central line. And so you need your hands to be pristine in the hospital. And that's my answer. But at home, it is different. And I don't go crazy with the hand sanitizer. It may sound like I do, but I don't. So, 
Right. So you're asking about, um, first of all, when do you want to use soap and water as opposed to the hand gel? And secondly, um, will the electronic monitoring still work? Well, the good news is the electronic, I thought of this. So, yes, the, the soap dispensers also have those little things. And when you push the little thing for the soap dispenser, same thing looks for you. Um, when do you need to use soap and water? I'll give everyone a review. When you're taking care of a patient with C. difficile, you need to use soap and water after you see the patient. If your hands are visibly soiled, you need to use soap and water after you, uh, you need to use soap and water. Otherwise, hand gels is, um, is the preferred method because it actually works better than soap and water. So you're right about the C. diff, but the MRSA, I would say go ahead and use the hand gel. That's the best way to do it. And honestly, Hand gel is safer on your hands than soap and water. Multiple studies have shown that soap and water dry out your hands far more than the alcohol-based hand gels we use in hospitals that have emollients in them. And if you have an allergy to, a pro to one of the products that a hospital uses that you're working in, it's required by OSHA that they provide you with something that works for you that won't cause an allergy. It's probably an additive. Most people are not allergic to isopropyl alcohol. Yes. Yeah, I will. Let it. So two two things. Okay. First question is about um, what happens to the healthcare provider's colonization. So what happens to the microbial ecology, as we call it, of the healthcare provider? And the reality is we don't know very much about it for two reasons. One, what we do know is that it's not so bad. Most healthcare providers don't, even after taking care of a patient with MRSA, they don't become colonized with MRSA. And if they do, it's very transient, only for a few hours. And so um, it's highly unlikely since you're actually, you know, it feels like you spend a ton of time in the hospital, but you're spending more time out of the hospital. And that keeps you from having these massive shifts like your patiency. But we don't know a lot about it. This is a blind area in research because there's liability associated with knowing the answer to that question. If I know that my healthcare providers are covered in a bunch of stuff, then maybe I can be sued for if my patients get sick. And um, nobody wants to open that can of worms. And so it's, these studies are very few and far between. But the ones that we do have show that your time outside the hospital is enough to keep you from becoming too colonized with things. And if you wash your hands, you should be good. Um, your second half of your question, now I can't even remember it. Oh, yeah, outpatient. Antibiotics in the outpatient. Yeah. So, it, you know, we do all kinds of um, I interventions in our clinics about, um, I'm focusing on the hospital day, but we do all sorts of things about preventing infections in the clinics. You know, there, there's messages that go out about wearing masks and everybody gets a mask and we have all these signs and all this stuff, right? Um, but uh, antibiotic prescriptions are tricky because it's really hard to monitor what happens outside. We just recently went live with our outpatient module on our electronic health record. So now we can see who's prescribing what and when. Now, we don't have as much control over it because in the hospital, I have complete control over what goes upstairs from my pharmacy. If I say you cannot get a drug unless somebody from infectious diseases approves, approves it, then they're not going to send it up until somebody from infectious diseases approves it. But I can't say that to Walgreens, right? So um, I, we can make educational interventions and things like that, and we're working on designing them. But um, to be honest with you, Overuse of azithromycin or Z-Packs is not going to kill anybody right now. Um, this is, you know, I've, uh, what I got into this because I was really worried about this like you are. Um, but the reality is that the real things that are killing people are not coming from overuse of Z-Packs. They're coming from overuse of Pipristal and Tazobactam and, you know, Carbapenems in hospitals, these really, really strong broad-spectrum antibiotics. But that doesn't mean it's not important because it all starts there, right? Our mentality about when we need an antibiotic as a patient and as a healthcare provider starts with overuse of antibiotics in the outpatient area. And um, we believe that's important. We're working on it. We're working on some interventions. But that's a tricky area. Yes.
So you're saying, how am I going to use social media to help people wash their hands? I'm not. Um, so social media is there to, as a novel educational intervention to teach people how to use their antibiotics. So, for example, I have a problem where I see that um, my uh, house staff don't understand that, bear with me for the names, just trust me on the concept, that cefepime, which is used frequently in our hospital, doesn't cover a bug called enterococcus. doesn't cover it at all. Most people think it does. So they're very confused about this, and they don't really know that they're not covering it when they give cefepime, right? So this is an example of something that I can tweet or send out on Facebook um, and say, hey, just a reminder, cefepime doesn't really cover enterococcus. If you want to cover enterococcus, you need to use ampicillin or vancomycin in addition to it. And that's the sort of thing, these little snippets of knowledge that people don't have um, that make it, that um, bridge that gap. Because people lack, antibiotic knowledge is not, um, you don't need to understand, you know, it's like there's sometimes you're understanding like the whole concept of how the kidney works, right? And then sometimes you're just memorizing, this is what this drug does. Antibiotics are a lot of um, memorizing. And uh, there's a lot of gaps where people think they know something, but they don't really know something, and uh, they don't really look it up. And we can help feed people reminders about those things using social media. Other questions? Troy. Yeah, so um, the University of Chicago is a great place for evidence-based practice. Um, first of all, this is, you know, mostly I'm talking about creating new knowledge, which is the research that we use in order to make decisions about care. But um, we also uh, go to what other people have done because there's no point in reinventing the wheel if someone else has already done it. So in our hospital with nursing, we have a whole nursing office. There's, there's two things. There's nursing research, right? So all of our nurses participate in some kind of research at some point, blah, blah, blah. And then there's the Office of Nursing Education, which um, works very hard to create nursing practice standards that are based on evidence. And all of our nursing guidelines have all of the evidence, like, sort of embedded into them. And, um, and then they do these return demonstrations. So you know how you learn these things in your practicals, right? And you learn how to do this procedure or that procedure or how you're supposed to manage this or what you're supposed to do, you know, how you're supposed to scrub the hub when you're doing a accessing a central line or how you're supposed to do a dressing change. Well, we include a lot of evidence in that. So our nursing educators won't agree to any policy that's not evidence-based. I can't tell you how many times I've sat around a table with these people, and we have to go through every last shred of evidence to make sure that if we say you need to scrub the hub for five seconds, it's five seconds. Because if there's no evidence for five seconds, then maybe it should be three, maybe it should be ten. We don't know, so we shouldn't say, right? So um, all of the policies and things that we have all reference uh, best practices, and it's um, part of what we do every day. And our nurses come to us and they say, I don't see anything about why we're doing it this way. Or they come to me and they say, I read this paper, and I think that we could prevent more infections if we did X, Y, and Z, in which case then we look at it, we figure it out, we try and incorporate it into our operating goals and our annual plan. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah. Evidence-based practice is, um, there is no practice without evidence-based practice. Okay, so um, that's a great question. So uh, scrubbing the hub is, the jury's out on scrub the hub. I'll tell you, this, here's what you need to know about central line. We just did this huge central line thing, right? Yeah, well, it should be the same probably, right? So peripherals, less risk for uh, deep bloodstream infection, right? But central lines are the real problem. So we did this whole, I should have told you this story. We had this, we did this whole CLABSI, you know, CLABSI, central line associated bloodstream infection. I didn't think you'd care. Um, so we did this whole CLABSI reduction project last year. We had one per thousand central line days infections. That was our baseline, right? And we wanted to reduce it by 10%. And there's these, there's different ways of looking at reducing these things in hospitals. You can do these big ticket events where everybody focuses on, you know, putting in the line and making sure everything's perfect and doing a checklist and having a bundled kit and blah, 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 you know, the Keystone Project and all this stuff. But the reality is that the added risk 
from all of the times that a line is accessed is much, much higher than what happens at the line placement. And the same thing is true of hand hygiene. That's why hand hygiene is so important to me. Because, you know, you can scrub for surgery, but it's the additive risk of not scrubbing for every single time you touch a patient that causes the big problem. And the same thing is true of access and maintenance for central lines. So one of the most important things you could do to protect patients is to be meticulous in the way that you manage central lines. And so we started this huge project. And you won't like what I have to say, but what we require is at least five seconds of scrubbing, at least 15 seconds of dry time, because if you, and always chlorhexidine, right? Um, because even if the patient's allergic to chlorhexidine, it's the line, not them. Um, and so we, and neonates, we use it on everybody. Chlorhexidine, no matter what. Scrub with chlorhexidine, five seconds. Wait 15 seconds for dry, and then here's the rub. You have to do this before every single connection. So I mean, scrub the hub, draw your waste, scrub the hub, inject your medication, scrub the hub, flush, and then you're done. That's a lot of scrubbing. There's 15 seconds for each of those. All of a sudden, what a nurse was doing in like 30 seconds, they're now doing in like five minutes. And um, it's really irritating, but um, we cut our central line rate by 40% with, um, and most of it was due to that intervention. This is um, probably the most important thing that we did in our hospital last year to protect patients. Is there a difference between the alcohol and the chlorprep? Chlor chlorprep? Are you talking about skin prep, the chlorhexidine? Yeah, we've been using chlorhexidine for a long time. They shouldn't. No one should. But, I mean, I can't control what everybody does. But, I mean, the chlorhexidine is the gold standard of cleaning central lines and peripheral lines prior to, um, prior to accessing and should be used whenever possible. So that's the, per usually it's the, uh, you know, the brand name chloroscrub or chloroprep in the purple package, right? The alcohol has got the red writing on it and the chloroscrub has the purple. But, yeah, if you can use chloroscrub or chloroprep, yeah. And when we do line, when we do dressing changes, it's, um, uh, a full minute going one direction with the chloroscrub and uh, a full minute going the other direction and 90 seconds to dry with a mask on you and a mask on the patient and like a sterile field and we go a little crazy, but it works. Yes. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. So you're pointing out to me that, um, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we manage when we're asking people to spend more time putting on their gowns and gloves and more time at the hand gel dispenser and more time accessing central lines? Well, that's a good question. But to be honest with you, um, the additional time that we've asked nurses to add to their day for the accessing of central lines comes out to about six minutes. So it's... It, because they're not, each individual nurse isn't accessing a central line more often than, you know, a few times in a shift because now they batch everything together. So basically the added time comes from efficiency. It means you have to plan ahead. You have to batch all your stuff that you need to do with a central line at one time. It means that um, central line dressing changes happen on Sundays when there's less happening in our hospital and everybody's dressing gets changed on Sunday because there are less other demands on a nurse's time on Sunday. And so we work very hard to try and fit these things into the practice pattern that we already have in ways that will allow us to make the best use of our time. I mean, yes, the nurse is going to have less downtime. I mean, she gets her breaks and he gets his breaks. But um, the bottom line is that um, we still have people on Facebook a lot. <laughs> Granted, I want you to be on Facebook, but only if you're reading about antibiotics. How much staff time is spent by 
yeah, a whole bunch. So that, that's the other advantage is that if your patients are less sick, then you have less that you need to do with them. And, and so if, if we put, if we follow isolation precautions more often, then fewer patients need isolation precautions and overall it goes down. Um, but I think it's, uh, the, the point still about trying to make these things efficient is important because we are adding time to these tasks. But there are other times when we take things away, when we say, we just don't want you to do this anymore because um, it, it is, uh, it's, not a good, it's not a good practice. We're going to simplify this and make somebody else do that task. So, you know, we try and balance it. Because believe me, the nursing practice people, they would kill me if I didn't. There are plenty of people advocating for the nursing practice. And it's the same with the docs. I mean, it's the same when I tell docs. So, oh, for example, when we do antibiotic restrictions, so a lot of antibiotics are restricted. You have to call us and ask first before you give these antibiotics. So um, that's irritating. And then on top of it, we call you 48 hours later and tell you whether or not you're allowed to continue it. Um, so it seems like this would be very onerous for physicians and we would be getting in the way and spending too much of their time. So what we did instead is we created these um, online automatic use things. They're sort of uh, indication-based ordering. So if you choose an indication and you're honest about it, then we're not going to bother you until 48 hours later. And then when we call you, we're going to give you good ideas that are going to save you from having to, you know, give you valuable information that's going to save you from having to figure stuff out on your own. And 93% um, of the time, people take our recommendations, and I don't get a lot of complaints about us bothering them and taking too much of their time. So the, the goal is when you take away, when you add something to someone's day, then you should take something else away. And we try to do that. Anything else? Thank you again, everybody, for coming, and thank you to faculty members for bringing students. Have a good day. Thank you, Emily, for your time. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.